Well, it is a crazy time, right? It's just crazy. Everywhere you look, it's crazy. Um, more division than I've seen since the 60s, and I was a teenager then, so I was kind of immune to it. You know, it's, uh, with all due respect to teenagers, it was... Um, and the pandemic has, has created a, a, a reality that I don't think any of us ever thought we'd see. And the fear of what it may do to the economy, to people's jobs, much less health, um, the political division, the racial division, it is, it is a time like none other in my experience in America, and I'm older than most of you, but not all of you. Um, uh, and so you, you look at it and you think, what is, what is God's message for us today? We were scheduled to pick up in 1 Corinthians. And my first thought was to struggle with 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians is a book toward a very broken church. I mean, they have all kinds of dysfunction in them. You know, they, they have incest. We don't have that so far as I know. They have, all, all, they have division over different leaders. They have division of of arrogance and pride, and we have been, for the most part, a really united church. So there's one level I thought, you know, does 1 Corinthians really fit us? But as I've read over it the last several months, literally, and prayed, uh, I lit on something that I think is, is for us today. And that is we're going to look at 1 Corinthians, but we're going to look at it through the lens of one chapter. Um, you ask yourself, how does a church that is the Apostle Paul in its initial leadership, how does it end up in that kind of mess, right? I mean, surely if anybody knows how to start and build a church, it would be the Apostle Paul. Jesus himself showed up in person, hadn't happened to most of us, right? He, he writes half of the New Testament, pretty good on your resume as a Christian. I mean, generally speaking, he's pretty much a gold standard, in the New Testament, and yet he had churches that he had huge influence in that ended up being an absolute mess. And of all of those, the church at Corinth may be the, the big achiever, you know. And you ask, what, was it a failure of leadership? I don't think so. What, what holds all of that failure together? And as I've read the book of 1 Corinthians over and over again, I've come to a conclusion I think he tells us in 1 Corinthians 13. I think they are a church that had not learned to love. See, I, I can argue that every failure as a Christian is a failure of love. And I can do it on pretty firm theological ground. J Jesus, when asked what's the great commandment, said, love Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus summarized the whole Old Testament law in two types of love, love for God, vertical, and love for our fellow human, love horizontal. So it would mean that anytime we fall short of God's plan for us, it is fundamentally a failure of love. Either we are failing to love God fully or we are failing to love our fellow human completely. And I, I think the Apostle Paul puts... 1 Corinthians 13, where he does to make that point, because it is sandwiched between two chapters, both of which are about the fruit of the spiritual gifts. In other words, he, he intentionally sets it off by beginning the, the discussion of spiritual gifts, and then after it, going back to the discussion of spiritual gifts, which points to it as a centerpiece, in my opinion, of the whole book. 
So what we're going to do in the next few weeks is we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13 and see how Paul applies the principles that he lists for love in the exact problems that are going in the book of the people of Corinth. And my hope is that as a result of that, we'll step back and ask ourselves in areas where my life and what it should be, what's wrong with my love? How is my love of God insufficient? How is my love of others broken? What what is wrong with my love? Not that I'm the only one, but I'm the only one I can address, you know? Because all of this division, generational division, racial division, political division, division over masks, one of my neighbors said, I don't believe in masks. What does that even mean? I mean, I didn't know what to say to that. Julie said, tell her you don't believe in shoes. I, I, you know, um, because I'm from East Texas, you know, I didn't have any till I was 11. I actually told a girl that at UT when I got down there. I never had shoes till I was 11. She said, oh, not that far into East Texas. But the, the you know, we're, we're a divided people. Something's broken. Something's broken. We've had significant church leaders fail in a dramatic way. Something's broken. We've lost the ability to disagree over how to address our society's problems with civility. We'll always disagree, but there's, no, there's such an absence of civility. Something's broken. We, we've lost the ability in so many ways to address the issues that we struggle with because something's broken. And I want to suggest to you we need to learn to love again. So if you will, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I've got to tell you I have a bias toward this book. I've told you before if you've been in here a lot um, that uh, a significant uh, thing that happened in my life was my senior year in high school. My junior year of high school, we desegregated. My senior year of high school, we had rioting. And um, I, I was just a kid. You know, a senior in high school, not that seniors in high school aren't much further advanced now than they were then, but I was, I was just a kid. And um, I was on the football team. I carefully say I didn't play on the football team. That would imply I was in the games. I was on the sidelines. I worked real hard at getting dirty during warm-ups so I'd feel better about myself as the game went on. Um, But obviously, one of the first things that's always desegregated is sports. And I I had friends that were African-American on the team, and, and, and we went through all of that heartache. And we were just kids. And I was trying to figure out how to, and I had friends saying and do things that were, I couldn't understand. And I started reading 1 Corinthians 13. And I think I read it every night for a year. And it, I think it changed my life. Because if, if it is foundational to what it is to obey God, then it seems to make sense to me that it would be foundational to what it is to serve God as well. In these first three verses, the Apostle Paul is going to show how we fail 
when we do it absent of love. One of the things, next, as when we start going through the characteristics in verses 4 through 8, one of the things that will strike you is how similar, I see people looking at the screens, aren't they cool? Isn't that amazing? Look how bald my head is. Wow. Um, the, um, I get much more distracted in here. This is not good. Um, one of the things you'll notice is that the list that he makes of the characteristics of, the, of love are remarkably similar to the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Now, let me try to explain that to you. More and more scholars believe that when it says the fruit singular of the Spirit is love, more and more scholars believe that is the fruit of the Spirit. And then the rest of the list is a description of what love is. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And that's why these two lists align so similarly. Both are describing that essence of what it is to obey God. That is to love. Let me say one other thing, and I may say lots of other things because I can. Um, love in the New Testament, as we go through this, is very different from what our culture calls love. Our, our culture uh, has, uh, first of all, it's oftentimes sexual, sexualized. That, that, so everything in our society has become sexualized, that love has oftentimes become sexualized. And obviously, the, this, there, while Scripture elevates sexual love, it celebrates sexual love, that's not what I'm talking about here. Love is oftentimes in our, in our culture treated as kind of a sentiment, something you feel. And while certainly there are feelings that are a part of love legitimately, the, the love of Scripture is much more than just a sentiment. Um, love in our society has become a means of my self-expression, a description of who I am. And in and, and our society, and, and, and Scripture, it's much more aligned to how I know God. So as, as we use the term love, you will see that it, it is a very active idea, but it is not a word for sissies. Because in the New Testament, the, the love of God is one of the most frightening concepts there is. Because to, to love the way God calls us to demands more than anything else in your life. So I want us to look today just at the first three verses. Um, as I mentioned, he has just started a description of the spiritual gifts. And chapter 12, verse 31, he says, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. But, but first, let me show you a more excellent way. In chapter 14, he'll go into a comparison between tongues and prophecy and said, don't pursue tongues, pursue prophecy. It's a greater gift. It speaks for God. It edifies others. But he says, first, before we even go there, let me show you a more excellent way. Let me show you what really matters here. I don't know about you, but when I'm trying to learn something, a new skill, a new situation, how to respond to something in life, the most valuable thing is when someone says, but can I, can I show you the key that's the difference between success and failure here? You ever had that? You ever been sitting with someone and they're trying to help you with something? They say, the one thing you've got to keep in mind in this that makes all the difference in the world, this is the one thing that you can't forget. That's what he's just said. Let me show you the most excellent way. Verse 1, 
If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I'm gifted. If I'm gifted. Especially with speaking gifts, but, but if I'm eloquent, if I'm gifted. The, the Jewish people obviously highly valued the prophetic voice and the gifted speaker, and, and it, was a, it was something that would have mattered a great deal. Now, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians will say, I know I didn't come, I'm not a great speaker. He, he was not particularly eloquent. Uh, he was not the guy that built the church based on, as we used to say in seminary, being a goldie throat. Um, he was a man whose character did the work it did. But, but throughout the history of the church, we have always valued those with great gift. John Chrysostom was the greatest preacher of the, of the uh, church fathers. Um, you know, you can list today who the great preachers are, and, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing that God specially gifts some people. And, and God has used those speaking gifts to, to reach uh, millions of people throughout history. But he said, if I do it and I don't have love, it's just noise. It's just noise. Symbols and gongs do not good melodies make, right? It's just noise. Um, with the internet, with TV with everything else, this is a time when the great speakers are particularly pointed out to. In fact, I've been on a number of calls with other pastors as we're trying to deal with the, the pandemic and as we're trying to deal with the race issues in Dallas. And I, I've never spent so much time talking to other preachers. I don't typically pursue other preachers, but, but we're all trying to figure this out together. And, and one of the things that I've heard people express is, you know, pastors wondering, will people come back? Will people come back? Because they've gone out and they've heard the, seen the really great shows, the really great music, the really great eloquent speakers. And, you know, are, are, will the show be so good? Will they come back? Because it's, it's a really appealing thing, right? It's, 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 it's great to hear someone that stirs the heart. Um, but Paul says if, if there wasn't love, it's just noise. It hasn't, doesn't seem as though it takes long before another one falls, does it? Seems like just, just when you get over one big name, eloquent preacher, gifted Christian leader, who's, who's known and recognized, it seems like ju just when one falls and you think, okay, we're over that one, another one does. And, of course, the secular press loves it. They, they splatter it all over the thing. And, and um, what is that failure? Why did the hyper-gifted fail? According to 1 Corinthians 13, because they didn't love. They failed in their love of God, and they failed in their love of others. It's not because they're gifted. But it's because, I would suggest to you that it's because their gift is so remarkable that they can lean into their gift rather than lean into God. And, and, and rather than speaking as a service of love to those who listen, 
they may have fallen into speaking for the enhancement of their own ego. The Apostle Paul saw that. He said, you know, I don't care how eloquent you are. If there's not love, it's just noise. It's just noise. Uh, We, because one of the amazing things about the way God works, he always works incarnationally through people. And character always ultimately feeds into it. And the, the, the ability to love is part of that. You know, uh, if you want to see how powerful the spoken word is, just think of World War II. World War II, you had two remarkable speakers. Adolf Hitler, now I know you're thinking, hey, he was a bad guy. Yes, he was. But if you watch the, the films of his speaking, his ability to capture the heart of the German people and manipulate them to do unthinkable things is frightening. It was amazing. Now, obviously, I listen to him. It's just a lot of spitting. I don't understand what he's saying. I don't understand. And he particularly had a, you know, problem. But um, you see tens of thousands of people responding emotionally. Now, granted, he had political influence, he had military influence, but his spoken word is a major part of how he advanced his work. And ironically, the man most known for defeating him was also a hero of the spoken word, Winston Churchill. Churchill was born with a speech impediment. He um, may be the most influential speaker in the history, certainly of the 20th century, who, who, by the power of the spoken word, turned the tide when it looked insurmountable. So, God uses the spoken word. But ironically, Hitler's wasn't motivated for love. And Churchill's was. With all of his faults, there's never any question of his love for the English-speaking people. This isn't just true of of big preachers, though. It's also true of, as an individual, when I speak truth to someone. You ever had that experience where someone says, I'm going to speak truth to you? And and you you grab hold of something because you know it's about to come, you know? They're going to blast you away. Have you ever had that experience when it was loving and you walked away and thought, what a blessing? Or when it wasn't loving and you walked away and thought, one of us needs to die right? I know that that's, I'm not supposed to say that, but that, right? That's kind of how you feel. So we've all experienced that. That's what Paul is saying. It doesn't matter how gifted I communicator I am. If there's no love, it's just noise. Look at the next one. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but we live in the information age, so we love knowledge, right? We're all about knowledge. And because of the World Wide Web, all of us know everything there is to know and are right because we looked it up, right? 
I mean, this, this is a time when there's a fascination with knowledge. And in, in the Hebrew circles in which this was written, the idea of prophecy, which he will pick up later and elevate, the idea of speaking on behalf of God is particularly powerful. And, and so the prophet is that person who speaks with that sense of authority and tells us the way we should go. Properly speaking, it's ultimately, it's the speaking on behalf of God. Here, I think there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek. Because if you're speaking prophetically and there's no love in it, then I question whether it's from God. But he's making the second list a thing that is inadequate apart from love. And he says that's claiming to know. Um, I, I spent 10 years at Dallas Seminary and was around some of the smartest people I have ever encountered in my life. I mean, people that were just weird smart. You know what I mean? Just weird smart. Um, I didn't have him for class. I visited his class with Mike Fisher when I was a kid. Bruce Walkie taught Hebrew. Um, they told the story about Dr. Walkie that he, he explained to his class he had had a real frustrating day because he was looking up a word in his dictionary, and after 30 minutes he realized he was looking in his French dictionary, like you do. I mean, he, his, his ability with language was so great, he just didn't notice, Right? I mean, that's just weird smart. That just ain't right smart, right? I mean, you get around, you can get in certain contexts and be around people that you just think lightning is coming out of their ears. This is crazy. But smart without love can be incredibly destructive. Have we seen that? Have we seen that in some of the stuff that's going on in Silicon Valley with social media and everything else, smart, just for the sake of smart, without love. And sometimes in the church, we'll elevate someone just because they're smart without considering, is, is the character of love there? Second half of verse two, and if I have faith that moves mountains, but I don't have love. If I have any of those three things, I'm nothing. Now he's really stepping on toes because faith is kind of, you know, that's one of the spiritual words, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's how we come into relationship with God. And, and all of us, I mean, Jesus said, if you have enough the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. So is he arguing with Jesus? What's going on here? I mean, this just doesn't feel real comfortable to me. What's he saying? That if it's divine, it's characterized by love. Can I tell you one of the ways this is expressed in the church world today? It's a word that I've grown so sick of, I could go the rest of my life and never hear it. And, and I'm confessing that to you. It's a confession of sin because I know I'm supposed to love this word. I am sick of the word vision. I mean, I, I, it's a great word. We all should have it without vision. The people will perish. I get all of that. But... but so often when you hear the word vision, it's used of a goal that I'm going to go for no matter what the destruction I cause to get there. See, in, in, to be a biblical vision, it is a vision, it is a faith that is marinated in love. And one of the ways that we Christians can, can be deceived by Satan is to buy into a vision that's separated from love. 
And while we might accomplish our task, it doesn't have the divine. Because vision can so easily become something that's about me, about the person who has it, right? And, and we can talk about great faith, but, but, but faith without love is broken. Finally, verse 3. And if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship so that I may boast but don't have love, I gain nothing if I sacrifice. Now, he's, he's really hit a crescendo here because sacrifice is one thing that the most secular of people appreciates, right? Why do we talk about first responders? Because of the sacrifice they make for our safety. Our protection. Why do we talk about the military? Because of the incredible sacrifice they expose themselves to for our safety. Uh, Peter and Mary and Fredheim here. Why do we talk about missionaries? The sacrifice they make to, to go serve the Lord in a place that is not as comfortable as the United States. It's sacrifice, right? It, it's, an, it's like faith. It's, it's one of those perfect things. How could you dis-sacrifice? Because even sacrifice can be a function of pride. Can I tell you that I've been around pastors that the sacrifice has made them cynical and bitter so that they no longer love their congregations? I've seen missionaries that because there wasn't love for the people, they became cynical and bitter and it no longer... It can even happen in marriages where we get so focused on what we're giving up that we lose sight of the command to love and, and it ends up in a, it's broken, right? What's, what's Paul saying? He says, he's saying in effect that it doesn't matter how spiritual it looks, how, how good we dress up the pig, if there's no love, it's still a pig. And I don't mean any disrespect toward pigs by that. The, the fact of the matter is that Paul is saying that, that literally anything as a follower of Christ that's done absent of love is broken and wasted effort. And to the extent any church is broken, there's a brokenness of love. My old boss, Dr. Walford, used to say that every heresy was preceded by a character decision to sin. In other words, uh, heresy even begins with a loss of love to God that moves toward loss of correct theology. Um, so in your marriage, if there's brokenness, it's brokenness of love. Sure, the other person has faults. By the way, they had faults when you married them. There, there's, there's a love issue here. In our society, uh, we, we have learned, lost the ability to love and respect people that disagree with us. It's frightening. Never seen anything like it. You can see it in Congress. You can see it in our streets. There, there, there is, there's not a basic love and respect demonstrated toward each other, right? 
And the same thing can happen in a local church where we, we can talk about its theological break or its other things, but in essence, when a church is broken, it's a brokenness of love. It, it's losing sight of why are we here. Why are we here? Because by this, the Father has shown his love toward us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We are here because God loved us enough to give his son. And if we are to be like him, then that means we are to live that same love. And just because we speak well, just because we have great faith, just because we're real smart and have a lot of knowledge, or even because we sacrifice, if any of that, no matter how good it is, is done in a vacuum of love, then God considers it worthless and void. So I have a question. What's my love inventory? What's yours? In the different roles of my life, am I doing things out of duty or am I doing them out of love? Am I doing them out of pride or am I doing them out of love? Am I doing them out of love because God did it for me and he's commanded it for me or am I doing it for some other reason that ultimately makes it a waste? We're going to look at the book of Corinthians at things like broken families broken churches, and broken societies. But the question is going to always be, how did they fail at loving? And the question I have for you and for me is how are we loving? Are we winning? Are we exalting ourselves? Are we proving ourselves to be right? Are we impressing other people? Or are we loving? Are we loving? Please pray with me. Lord, I confess that it's hard to love and easy to forget to. And sometimes love is hard to capture, to desire the best for others and work to give it to them. And Father, we confess that our flesh and Satan have an amazing ability to take good things and twist them off just enough that they're no longer loving, even though they look good on the outside. Father, I pray that you would fill my fit, fix my brokenness with your love. I pray that you would fix our church's brokenness, whatever it is, by your love. And that we would go out into the world and demonstrate the love that caused you to give your son in such a way that it turned hearts and minds back to you. Because you are a loving God. And it's in your name we pray.